Well, good afternoon. Uh, if I haven't met you, Al Stewart, I, I figure actually I'll, I'll get to meet everybody here over the next couple of days. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. But as I walked in, I thought this building has been designed by an architect, not a public speaker. Like, yeah, yeah, anyway, we'll compete. <laughs> I've been doing itinerant stuff one way or another for 20-something years and uh, been put in speaking all sorts of difficult situations, background noise, all sorts of things. But I remember one night, they've organised, someone's organised dinner out and you've got 30 or 40 people in a, in a, I think it was a Spanish restaurant. So I'm seated there and not only was it not a self-contained room, so there were all other tables out and so on, but when, that, when I stood up, I realised I was standing between two big pictures on the walls, two kind of line drawings of obviously naked women. So as I'm standing there, they're all like, so anyway, it's, um, what did I speak about? I'm not sure if I can remember. I don't know if anyone else did either. About 10 years ago, uh, I went on a once-in-a-lifetime shooting trip to Cape York. And uh, I've been every year since, except one, I think. So uh, it was fun. But this first trip, uh, there's an old guy called... Now, we're taping this, aren't we? Okay, right up. There was an old bloke called Les who ran it, kind of this soft city boy safaris thing, and you turn up and he'll take you out and shoot a few pigs and that sort of thing. And as we, as we got off the aeroplane, Les met us, and then the bloke who owned the property called John, he, um, he turned up as well. And, and John's riding a motorbike, and he's built basically the same as a, a bear, I think I'd put it, and uh, this big bear in a khaki shirt and barefoot. And I've said to him, I looked down and like he said, oh yeah, I spilled acid on my boots a few weeks ago and I haven't got into town to get another pair. So he's riding, he's chasing cattle, catching bulls, riding the bike all barefoot. So two or three days later, we're in this kind of a shed where they kind of were bunked out and there was John and then there was a couple of his great big mates who worked for the national parks. Uh, I think they were shooting stuff that, you know, shouldn't have been in the national park and then there's Les and then my dad and my brother. And there's beer bottles, about 100 beer bottles on the table, you know, kind of that they've drunk. And then they'd cooked up spaghetti bolognese in a two or three gallon steel bucket. And uh, that had been eaten and all the beers drunk and so on. And there's a bit of testosterone flying around. And uh, we're sitting at the table and my... Uh, and then John pushes back, the bloke with no shoes, pushes back and says, so uh, what do you blokes do for a living? And uh, he kind of asked my dad, who... Uh, Paused, looked around the room and then said, let's get this tight. My dad says, well, I'm a retired prison officer. And then my brother points at my brother and Mark, he's a carpenter. And then he looked at me and our eyes met. <laughs> and my dad, he just went. <laughs> he just, I, uh, anyway. And then he said, now, what do you think I wanted him to say? I wanted him to say, Alan's a driller on an oil rig. Alan works for the SAS. Alan's a martial arts instructor. Alan's, and my dad said, and Alan's um, an Anglican minister. And there was just silence. You, you could hear the crickets for a little while. And then, now here's the thing. Why do I want him to say I work for the SAS rather than I'm an Anglican minister? Uh, it's not as if they were going to beat me up. They weren't. Uh, I, why? Because I'm worried about what will these guys think of me. 
Um, I was the chaplain of the Sydney City Roosters for a couple of years at the beginning of the 90s. And uh, I used to turn up and uh, they treated me okay, but it was a really awkward time because it was just little baldy-headed me and 50, 50 graded footballers in a room and I'd wander around and I, what do these guys think of me? Now, when does it affect you? I know here, um, oh, no problem, you know, that it's uh, no problem at all. But I, I know, isn't it, when you meet someone and you meet someone at a wedding that you don't know and you talk to them for a while and you're chatting away and then, and then they say, so what do you do for anything? Oh, here it comes. And you've got to answer that question, uh, what you do. And then, you, uh, or I don't know, if, you know, if you're a young mum and you're at the school gate, it's what do you and your husband do? And then you've got to explain that and that kind of awkward, uh, that awkwardness. And I'll tell you what happens then. They patronise you and they give you the option of basically saying you're a religious social worker. And then you have to choose, are you going to let that go through to the keeper and be the religious social worker? Or are you going to step up and say, so where do you stand with Jesus? It's that... And um, see, uh, in this company, you know, I find myself saying, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll follow you anywhere, Lord, I'll, I'll die with you, I'll never deny you. And I just hear a kind of a rooster crow over here somewhere. Uh, and the Lord Jesus knows us, doesn't he? What does he say in Mark chapter 8, verse 38? He's pretty tough. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Now, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Don't be ashamed of me, is what he says. Uh, I was going to speak on 1 Timothy uh, over these three days. I was going to give three Bible talks on 1 Timothy. But as I've looked more and more and understood the difference between the two letters, I realise I think it's 2 Timothy that we need to to engage with. Uh, and, and what I've realised is there's two themes that run through to Timothy and sometimes I would have before, I would have put them together but now I realise they're actually um, opposites, uh, uh, like oil and water, they, they, they don't mix. And the, the themes are being ashamed uh, or suffering for the gospel. You know, you normally think, oh, being ashamed and suffering kind of go together. It's not the way Paul sees it. As Paul writes, you're either going to be ashamed of the gospel or you're going to suffer for the gospel, but you don't have both. If you're ashamed, you won't suffer. And if you suffer for the gospel, it's because you're not ashamed. Um, I actually printed out 2 Timothy there in the ESV for you, um, and I thought we'd work our way through the first three chapters. See, it's worth understanding, the pastorals are very important. The pastorals are actually the link between us and the apostles. Very important. It's where the apostles are passing, or particularly Paul, is passing on the baton to us and the forms of ministry and so on. And there's those today who want to undermine the pastoral epistles or put them into some kind of sub-canon. It's not because of the evidence, it's because they say things that are uncomfortable and it's the attempt to kind of weasel out from, from under um, what the pastorals say. And there's a big difference between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. You know, that, that one page in the Bible, there's a big difference. When you read 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is saying, uh, he's free, I'm, uh, I'm expecting to come to you soon. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of upbeat. He's giving the, well, have a look, if you've got your Bibles there, I hope you have, have a look at um, 
1 Timothy 3.15, where he tells us the, um, the reason that he writes. He says, um, I'll read from 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I'm delayed, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. He's really telling you how, to, how a church should function. And I thought, yeah, that'd be good to talk to the first in the shoot conference about how a church functions. But I think, no, um, 2 Timothy actually addresses something that we, we need more urgently, that we need more urgently. Because by the time you get to 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison, in Rome... Uh, he's been deserted by a number of people, and we'll see that in just a moment. Um, people from Asia and, and Demas uh, have, have deserted him. And about five or six times he says he's expecting to die soon. And this is the last letter he writes, so it really is kind of the, the business end of things for him. You know, have any of you guys read this, um, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark? Anyone kind of just, just a nod? I know there's teddy bear eyes in most of the room, but just kind of like, you ready? anyone read it? Okay, no. All right. The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. I can't work out exactly where Rodney Stark stands with, uh, uh, with the Lord Jesus. I, I don't think he's a card-carrying evangelical, but I, it's hard to tell from the way he writes. But he has some very good things to say. The first half of this book is mainly kind of sociology of religion. Re flick through that. But the second half basically tells you how it is that the Christian faith, or the Christians, went from just a handful of people in the middle of the first century to eventually take over the Roman Empire. And his thesis is that they, the Christians, outlived, outloved, and outdied the pagans. Um, they stayed behind. They nursed them when the plagues were on. They um, treated the women properly. They didn't abort their babies, and all sorts of things. So, and what he says is, his little thesis. And I think he's wrong in one part, but it's worth understanding. When you get to the mid-60s, he reckons that the Christian faith hadn't multiplied and hadn't boomed and hadn't taken over the world as they expected. And so you get to a kind of a crisis point in the 60s. I'll read, read you one of these sentences here and you tell me what you think's wrong. When Paul and Peter and the other members of the founding generation looked around in the 60s AD, they could have counted only something less than 3,000 Christians. Now, I think he's wrong there because the book of Acts gives much bigger numbers than that. Right? But not only had Jesus not returned, but three decades of missionising had yielded only slim results. The New Testament gives us no basis for believing that these men were immune to doubt, and it would be strange had they not sometimes despaired. If they did, how is the problem to be solved? Now, I'm not sure if he's using the right categories there, uh, but that's the question he's asking. Now, his answer to, to the, what happened in the 60s is that there were three very significant events that really made the difference in terms of the Christian faith. He says, if it is true that the twofold crisis of confidence became most acute in the 60s, then I think it extremely important to note that three rather extraordinary incidents of martyrdom occurred in that same decade. First, in about the year 62, James, the brother of Jesus and the head of the church in Jerusalem, uh, was murdered by Herod. Second, after spending several years under arrest in Caesarea, uh, and then being transported to Rome to await uh, the outcome of his, of his appeal to Caesar. The Apostle Paul was executed in Rome during 64 or 65. And third, either late in 65 or in 66, Nero launched his persecution and Peter was killed. Not only did the three most admired and holy figures of the time die for their faith, undaunted either by the delay of the Second Advent or by the small number of their followers, it would appear that Paul and Peter 
could have avoided their fates, Paul by recanting and Peter by flight. Uh, and I wonder as you read this, the Apostle Paul realises that that's got to happen. You read 2 Timothy, he knows he's going to die. And so he writes to, uh, he writes to Timothy, uh, and you know, as you read this, pretty much every emotion that you can think of is in this letter. You just read it a few times. So uh, as you read it, you know, there's, there's love and joy and heartache and sadness, and it, it's kind of, it, it's all there. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to win Australia for the gospel, we've got to have men and women, and especially if I can say young men and women, who are going to step up and do what Paul calls Timothy to do. It's that simple. Right? If we're going to win Australia, we've got to do this. Let's have a look at chapter 1 and see what he calls him to do. And keep in mind that idea of ashamed or suffer, but it'll be one or the other. Um, I'll read it again for you. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, Notice he calls him his beloved child. Oh, by the way, I've gone for the ESV because generally the ESV is more accurate than the NIV. It's just harder to read. Um, reads a bit like it's been translated by Yoda sometimes, but ooh, sentences backwards they are. But you can get used to it. Um, uh, you can get used to it. And there's one time in here where the NIV is better than the ESV. But anyway, uh, notice he calls him his beloved child. I think NIV's got uh, beloved son, is it? But it's, it's child. Um, beloved child. So he does love him, but you notice too that he calls himself an apostle. So it's not Uncle Paul or Paulie, right, writing to it's the apostle. So he's still, there's the badge of authority here as he writes to this young man that he loves. And then he writes, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. This is, this is the same man who says he was the worst of sinners back in 1 Timothy. So he has a clear conscience. Why? He's been forgiven. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Uh, literally in the original, it's that you're, um, non, uh, that you're not a hypocrite. Non-hypocrite is the word. Right? Your non-hypocritical faith. Um, I know you're for real. Sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Interesting, in um, uh, 3.15, it, we'll see on uh, Wednesday, he talks about... Um, hold on to the faith that you've got in the scriptures because you know who you learned it from, namely his mum and his grandmother. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, when you're first introduced to Timothy, uh, all you're told is he's, um, uh, his mother was Jewish and she was a believer. She doesn't even get a name in, in Acts 16 when, when he's first introduced. I, I think back and I remember my mum, who's married to a man who's not a believer yet, uh, and I remember as a little boy uh, sitting on her bed uh, with my brother as we uh, kind of misbehaved and didn't listen and whatever and her trying to teach us the King James Bible or the Westminster Confession and bribing us with chocolate. Uh-huh. And yet, you know what, I didn't want to know until I became a believer at 20 and then all that good Calvinist stuff just clicked into place. Anyway, all right. Never underestimate a mum. Never underestimate a mum. Notice he's got sincere faith. Why? Verse, what is it? Because of his sincere faith. What does Paul ask him to do? He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. The fan into flame word, uh, kind of three words combined, again life and fire. 
it's, it's the idea of, you know, when you're in uh, the campfire and it's just about out and you take your hat off and fan it and it bursts into flame. Okay. Um, fanning the flame, the gift of God, as far as I can tell, we're not really told what the gift is. In 1 Timothy um, uh, 4.14, he talks about don't neglect the gift given by the laying on of hands, but doesn't, still doesn't tell you what it is. Uh, it could be the gift of being an evangelist, but there's no, I mean, he tells, tells him to do the work of an evangelist, but I'm not sure. Here's something. Usually, uh, Timothy is described as timid, okay? Timid Timothy. Uh, I'm just not convinced about that. You think, oh, well, he's. A... I can't find any evidence for that other than, um, you see, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. How about someone look up for me um, 1 Timothy 4.12? We got anybody who's going to do that? Jono, you got the... Okay, and... So, um, so 1 Timothy 4.12 and then, um, and John, I'll get you to read 4.14 as well. And then 1 Corinthians 16.10. Anyone going to, just, just the context just around that? 1 Corinthians 16.10. Uh, good on you, Tim. Righto. John, you want to read those out nice and loud? Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and purity. 14. Yep. Do, do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Okay, that's right. So don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Yeah, okay, right. And then don't neglect your gift. And who was going to do the... Um, oh, Tim, yeah. Nice and loud, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10. Okay, thank you. Does anybody know, I might get my whole little thesis here shot down, does anybody know any other evidence about Timothy and... Huh? Paul says, be nice to him when he turns up in Corinth, and, and in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, in 1 Timothy 4, it says, oh, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, and then in chapter 1 here, he's saying, uh, harden up because um, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Well, you read 1 Corinthians, Paul spent the whole of 1 Corinthians basically getting stuck into them, hasn't he? saying about, you know, factions and about um, lawsuits and about kick that guy out for sexual immorality and then stop doing this and you buff heads at the Lord's Supper and then stop... The, and, then, and then he's going to send Timothy, like, uh, kind of... Timothy gets first, first job to go and visit them. Well, uh, of course he says be nice to him. I don't think that's any evidence that he's timid. Uh, and look, to be really honest, I've, I've had to deliver six professional standard units verdicts to churches where someone's done the wrong thing and the central PSU has kind of investigated it all and then guess who gets to go and deliver the verdict that they haven't had anything to do with and read, you know, oh, we're going to kick him out of the ministry or whatever it is. And it's, I can tell you, it's not a lot of fun. Um, and so you put all this together, I don't think it's um, timid Timothy. Uh, Paul's saying in, in, in 2 Timothy 1... Paul's saying, actually, I'm about to be martyred and I want you to step up and take my place. So I'd change it from timid Timothy to um, psychologically healthy Timothy, I think. Um, you know, psychologically normal, um, not psychopath Timothy. I don't know, I just... I, what do you reckon? You guys look pretty excited about this, but anyway, all right. Why? Because I don't think he's a coward at all, and I don't think he's timid. I think he's just been called to a... It's a big call that Paul's making. Now, you look at verse 8. Therefore, 
Okay, so um, God doesn't call us to, a, it didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love and self-control. Yes, and he's going to need God's power and love and self-control to do this. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The ashamed word, as far as I can work out, it's pretty close to what we mean by embarrassed. Uh, when Jesus says in Mark 8.38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, if you're embarrassed, if you're you know, um, ashamed, or Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But here's what I want you to... You notice... Um, you notice, have a look at verse... Um, uh, where are we? Verse 8, and, and then also at verse 12, and they're, they're opposites. Oh, sorry, just going to juggle here. Um, Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed, right, but share in suffering. Or um, verse 12, um, uh, I was appointed a preacher, an, uh, an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. So the reason he suffers is he's not ashamed. And Paul tells him in 8, don't be ashamed, be prepared to suffer. Hey, what's the problem? Um, uh, for us, I think for most of us, the vast majority of us, it's not physical fear, is it? You're not going to get beaten up for the gospel. Well, generally, in Australia, you're not going to get beaten up for the gospel at all. Uh, I suppose I've been ridiculed, I've been laughed at. I remember one day in uh, Adelaide, I was in the middle of um, a university mission there and speaking away for the AFES guys there, and then some guy put his hand up in the, um, in the, middle, of the, uh, in the middle of the talk and then asked one... Um, uh, smart, I can't think of the polite way to say it, one smart question uh, after another and interrupt and that's all right. And then there's a window in the wall, I don't know where it came from, the window opens and then some guy who's obviously um, uh, part of kind of a homosexual activist opens and starts getting stuck in me about the whole homosexuality thing and I've got three or four, and I, I'll tell you, I didn't win that one, okay? I didn't win that one. And there's been others like it as well. But really it's pretty poor compared to what people in other countries face. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read this one, Tortured for Christ, by Richard Wormbrand. It's just, it's just a heartache. It's, he was a pastor um, and locked up by the communists in Romania. And I, I remember this, um, this little bit in here, and I think, what a sook I am. Um, he says, uh, he's, you know, so he's been imprisoned by the communists. And he says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to the other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number, of, a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. The following... I guess a hard man, right? The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners and the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through the phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to the beating room and what seemed like an, after what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him, bloody and bruised, on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked his battered body up, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued his gospel message. Uh, and uh, uh, this man, in, uh, that's one of the few, there's one other funny story in the book, which I won't use in case I need it some other time, but... Um, he says, 
The tortures and brutality continued without interruption. When I lost consciousness or became too dazed to give the torturers any further hopes of a confession, I would be returned to my cell. There I would lie, untended, half dead, to regain a little strength so that I could work on, uh, so they could work on me again. Many died at this point, but somehow my strength remained and managed to come back. In the ensuing years, in several different prisons, they broke four vertebrae in my back and many other bones. They carved me in a dozen places. They burned and cut 18 holes in my body. And on he goes. And he's the one that started uh, the voice of the martyrs, Richard Wormbrand. Now, I read that and I think, what, I'm worried that someone might point their finger or you know, patronise me. I think, oh, man, what's, you know, what's wrong? Now, what is it? What is it? Because it's real, and my guess is you guys feel it too, to be ashamed, trying to work it out, the feeling of dishonour in the eyes of other people. The feeling of dishonour in the eyes of other people. Or, God is small and people are big. You know what? It's subtle. It sneaks up and you never get 24 hours notice. In 24 hours notice, oh, sorry, here's 24 hours notice. This time tomorrow, someone's going to put you on the spot and you're going to have to, you know, um, step up and say something insightful and... It always sneaks. I, I bet you Peter wasn't sitting there thinking, okay, some servant girl's going to walk up in a minute and ask me about Jesus, and it's, it always sneaks up on us. Uh, um, now, notice in, um, uh, there's two things that he's told not to be ashamed of, right? In verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, uh, the, the, the word's witness. I, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And the other is, don't be ashamed of the Roman's prisoner, of Paul, the prisoner of Rome. But that's not what it says in verse 8, is it? Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me. Whose prisoner? His prisoner. See, Jesus, he still belongs to Jesus. He's Jesus' prisoner, not Rome's prisoner. It's very easy to... Well, maybe I'm the only, you know, godless wretch here. Uh, It's very easy to doubt the power of the gospel, isn't it? You think, oh, it's just a message and that guy or her or she, they, they could never believe that. And it's not worth telling them. And, and Kathy and I went to a, uh, uh, a confirmation service yesterday, which is, it was my last ever confirmation. And I can confirm that. But um, uh, it was great. Yeah, that's right. How many times? Oh, well, that's all right. I'm not only going to be able to use that joke. A very limited window. Okay. Um, uh, it was great. It was great. And the thing is, there was a, one a girl in year 10 but the other three who stood up and, and said they were going to follow Christ, two guys in their 30s and one lady who was 77, no, 76 when she'd been converted a few months ago. The first man stood up and said he was a recovering alcoholic and that um, uh, he'd, uh, he'd come to the church, that Jesus had grabbed hold of him, that his life transformed, that he'd met this wonderful girl and he was going to get married and just different world. The next man spoke about was in the middle of a suicide after life. He went, this is all said publicly, after life had gone down and down and down and down and down. And he actually said he heard demonic voices saying to kill himself. And in the process of trying to do that and and, uh, having cut himself and bleeding or whatever, he said Jesus spoke to him. And I I believe him. And, And... Totally different life now. A few months, he's putting life back together and so on. And then this other lady who's, who's um, 76, and it's because this timid, gentle little lady was having a knee operation at the same time, invited her to come to church, and she heard the gospel, and she said, I'm 76, and I have so much to learn. I'm in so much of a hurry. Oh, I didn't know about this before. And I, and I thought, yeah, thank you, Lord. That's great. There's the, go- you know, the gospel, just bang, bang, bang. All right? 
And um, she was tinged with excitement and regret. It was really sweet. All right. um, yeah, yeah, the power of the gospel to change people. And I'll tell you the other thing that, that Timothy didn't know then, that the gospel message would change the world. Um, it's not strictly the gospel. Rodney Stark's uh, writings, uh, I'm very good. He's a, the victory of reason and um, one true God. Uh, no, no, for the glory of God. For the glory of God and the victory of reason. He tracks through how it's a Christian worldview that, that led to um, the rise of science and freedom and uh, the creation of wealth and capitalism and so on. Uh, it's brilliant stuff. With that, that means it fits exactly with my prejudices, but it's worth... Re- the, the gospel or at least a Christian worldview, is what transformed the world. Of course, we're busy walking away from it now, and there'll be consequences. Um, so that's the first thing. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the gospel. The second thing, don't be ashamed of Paul, his prisoner. Uh, in jail, he would have seemed like you know, some crazy cult leader or whatever, and to go and visit him in prison would have meant that the authorities would have noticed you. Uh, it's you know, not, not a good uh, social move to line up with Paul. You know the irony in terms, of the, um, in terms of being ashamed? When you look elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of, of the gospel of Jesus, don't be ashamed of me. When you get to Hebrews, Hebrews says, Jesus became one of us, and so he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Jesus isn't ashamed of us. Uh, and um, in 11, Hebrews eleven sixteen, the Old Testament heroes of faith are looking for a better country, and so God is not ashamed to be called their God. And the other one in Hebrews 12, I think I finally understood it. You know, it says Jesus went to the cross scorning the shame. What does that mean? Jesus wasn't afraid of the shame of the cross for us. So it's that that idea, don't be ashamed, it's there. And the rest of the chapter is fairly simple. It's just um, examples of why why Timothy should not be ashamed of the gospel and then uh, how to not be ashamed of Paul, his prisoner. Let me go through that. Uh, fairly quickly. Um, verse 9, where's the power of the gospel? Right, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. You know, I don't know if that, that hits you as strange. It's the message of the, the abolition of death and immortality, and because of that message, he suffers. You think it, it, it's, kind of, it's good news, really, isn't it? Uh, why does he suffer? And I reckon, I was listening to a, to a Scottish preacher uh, the other day, and he showed me, he, he helped me see... You see at the beginning, though, he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's why Paul suffers. It's, it's because of the message of grace. You know, well, wait a minute. Grace is about like the free gift. Why would you suffer because of that? Um, it's like, who could be upset with the prodigal son? How, how could anyone uh, kind of object to the story of the prodigal son? Uh, answer, grace is in your face. That's why the second son is cranky. The prodigal son isn't the story of the prodigal son, it's the story of the two lost sons. Uh, um, why? It, see, what, what does grace say? Grace is offensive. We, 
we think it's great because we've, you know, God's changed our hearts. Grace is offensive. What does it say? Grace says you're not good enough and you can't be good enough, so it has to be a gift. Well, that's, you know, and um, it also says you, um, uh, you have to admit that you're wrong. Grace and repentance are two sides of the one coin. If it's only a gift, you've got to be repentant, and that's in your face as well. Now, why do people, why is the non-Christian world like liberals? Why? Um, could be that they uh, drink nice wine and have good table manners. I think that comes with it, but no. Um, the reason is the liberal gospel is this. Be like Jesus. Isn't that the liberal gospel? Be like Jesus. Why? Because you can be and because you're so wonderful, etc., etc. That's the liberal gospel. And that's not offensive to the world. Um, it's a lie and it's a burden in the end, but uh, you won't get persecuted if your gospel is be like Jesus. But you will if it's grace and so repentance. And so he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If you've got the NIV, you notice the end of verse um, 12 and the ESV and the NIV have gone different ways. So the ESV has, um, it should be the word, it probably should have stuck with the word deposit because later on in verse um, 13, Paul talks about the gospel as a deposit. But um, uh, now, the ESV has actually gone for the idea of that God has given something to Paul that he's able to guard. But the NIV reads... Um, uh, I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. So it's literally, um, you know, the original, it's just he's able to guard my deposit. So you kind of, the two translations have had to choose, do they go for this is something God's given to Paul or is this something Paul's given to God? I reckon it works better if it's, um, I think the NIV's probably got it right here, um, that it's something that the reason Paul's confident is he's entrusted his life to God and God will guard it. I think, that's, I think that's the way to go. Now, I don't know why they left out the word deposit because the way it works is Paul saying, I've given my deposit to God and he's trustworthy. And then verse 13 he says, follow the, the, um, the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God's faithful, I've given him the deposit of my life. Now you be faithful and you guard the deposit that God's given us, namely the gospel. Okay, so don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's powerful. It gives life. Um, God will be faithworthy. And then three examples of um, not being ashamed of, the, or of how to respond to the messenger, or me, his prisoner. Uh, you are aware that all in the province of Asia turned away from me. Among them are Phygelus um, and Homogenes. And when it says the province of Asia, it'll mean uh, the, Roman, um, or the Roman province of Asia, which is Western Turkey. And when he says everyone... Uh, I don't know if it means everyone, because that's, that's where Ephesus was. So obviously it's not every, everyone exactly, but you know he says, you are aware. So obviously Timothy knows what's going on, which is why he doesn't spell it out enough for us. But I wonder it's whether these two guys, um, Phygelus and uh, Hermogenes, whether they were in Rome and they had the opportunity to visit Paul and they brushed him uh, and didn't do it. I think that makes sense because then you contrast it with what Onesiphorus, um, I bet they came up with a nickname for him, 
um, uh, on Nesiphorus uh, did. So you see the contrast. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, um, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So Onesiphorus was from Ephesus. Uh, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on the day of on sorry mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So he's gone, he's found Paul and refreshed him and so on. And you know, to be honest, uh, you'll know when you're doing it tough, a little bit of encouragement helps a lot, doesn't it? Just a little bit. I remember. I remember I was going to one of our churches a couple of years ago and um, one of the young ministers, uh, I've talked about it, yeah, one of the young ministers had done the wrong thing and was about to be dismissed and it had been, evidence had been heard and, and, and so on and, and I get the job, I, wasn't, I get the job of going and delivering the message and uh, it's about 20 minutes before I had to go in front and the whole church was there and I'm thinking... These guys are going to tar and feather me because uh, most people thought he hadn't done it. And yeah, okay, great. And so I haven't eaten properly all day or whatever. So I thought at least I'll have a good meal before I, so I pull up at the Big M. And um, <laughs> there's Maccas and then about 200 yards up the road is the church. And uh, I've kind of, you know, I've got this big long letter I've got to read out. And I think, oh, well, you know, well, the tar will stick to that pretty well. And, and um, so I walked in dragged my butt up to the counter and uh, looked at the young bloke behind the counter and said, I'll have a, I think it was a Aussie meal or something with the, all the food groups, you know, salt, fat, sugar, caffeine, the works. So I've ordered an Aussie meal and um, he said, okay, all right, he's put it on the tray and then pushed it across and I've had the wallet out and he said, it's all right, no charge. I said, what? Uh, he said, it's all right, no charge. I said, but I, he said, I know who you are and I know why you're here and have a free meal on me. And it was like, now it wasn't Jesus, right? But it was like, <laughs> serious, I went, uh, uh, he said, I know, you've got to go up there tonight, and you've got to read that thing, that's a free meal. And I've kind of picked it up, and, and, and it was really like, as I went back and just ate that and read it, it was like, you know who's saying to me, stop being a sook, it's all right, I've got it under control, just, you know. But that young bloke, I remember that for a long time, for a long time. Um, and Onesiphorus, he probably didn't bring Paul McDonald's, but would have been something like that. Now, here's what I've been wondering about, though. You get to the end of the chapter, and I have thought long and hard lately about why, why do we see so little result for our evangelism? Now, I know I'm, you know, card-carrying Calvinist, it's all... Almighty God does as he chooses and he'll bring revival and all that kind of thing. But I, but I know we work, a lot of people work very hard and we want to see the gospel, you know, we want to see people one for Christ and yet generally it's a time of very small things and, and we don't see a lot of fruit. And I've got to say, I haven't seen a lot of fruit for what I've done. Um, why? And I just wonder whether there's, that, there's a call in here that I've realised between... Um, you're either ashamed of the gospel or you're going to suffer in gospel work. And if you're not suffering, then you're probably not... Do, you, know, this, you haven't got to suffer all the time. I'm not saying deliberately go and seek it. But if you're not suffering, are you, is there something that you're not doing? 
If you're not getting the aggro, and, the, and I just wonder sometimes whether I don't cross the pain barrier with people. Rico Tice, who works for um, All Souls Langham Place, great evangelist, and he says you've actually got to be prepared to cross the pain barrier with people. You do it in, you do it in an audience, you know, you kind of, you're talking and thinking, it's, you know, and God will hold us accountable. No, God will send you to hell for eternity and conscious torment. Um, but you just don't say that last bit. Um, we, or even one-to-one with people. You, you know when you can actually cross into awkwardness and we choose not to do it. And there's always good rationale for not doing it. There's, you've got to be sensitive and wise and careful and gentle. And I, I just don't read that the Lord Jesus was that kind of sensitive, careful and gentle as he spoke and preached and he loved people and that's actually why he crossed the pain barrier. I just wonder whether I, we need to think about that. Whether there's just that kind of subtle, oh, we won't, we won't push into there because if we do we'll get aggro or we'll alienate people or whatever and it's a, whether it's a subtle, is that a subtle form of being ashamed of the gospel? And it also is a subtle form of actually not suffering in gospel work. So if you, wanna, if you ever think to pray for me, why don't you pray that, uh, uh, that I won't be ashamed of the gospel and actually be prepared to push through and suffer. Because you know what? Usually for me, when I don't push through that pain barrier, it's not because I love the other person, it's because I don't want to suffer. Huh? I don't want to suffer. 